0: Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible study class. This morning we're glad you're here joining us in class, and we're glad you folks online. So let's have a word of prayer to start class. Father God, we, uh, we need you here this morning. Please be with us as we open your word, as we, as we study and learn about your character. Um, teach us who you really are, and transform us to be more like you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're studying Lesson 10 in our quarterly on the Book of James this week, and the title of the lesson is Weep and Howl, with an exclamation point. I don't know if you noticed, there's a lot of exclamation points in this week's lesson, so we'll, we'll kind of keep track as we go along. focuses in on issues of greed and excess, overindulgence, ill-gotten gains, gluttony, stuff apparently they were suffering from back then that we don't know anything about in our current culture. Um, At first glance, the lesson may seem like an indictment of all rich or wealth, but I honestly don't think that's the intent. Um, I mean, I'm not sure how many of you in this room have been on a mission trip. How many of you have visited a third world country? You don't even have to go that far. But I hate to tell you, relatively speaking, we are all rich. Um, So I, I really think this lesson is about, maybe more about the difference between hard work, being blessed, prospering, versus maybe theft, extortion, embezzlement as a means of acquiring wealth. And about the damage that can be done by holding on too tightly to the things of this world it's also about the difference between storing up earthly treasures versus investing in heavenly and eternal things so saturday's memory text should be very familiar kind of sets the tone for the lesson do not hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths or corroded by rust or worse stolen by burglars Stockpile treasure in heaven, where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, that is the place where you will most want to be and where you will end up being. That's from the message. The more familiar translation that you recognize is for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's from Matthew 2.26. So in Saturday's lesson, the quarterly talks about some rags-to-riches fantasies. Uh, they mention who wants to be a millionaire, game show specifically. But these kinds of fantasies are really the underlying premise of almost all game shows. Whatever the hot multi-level marketing scheme is at the time, reality television, the lottery, it's about the next big thing. And for sure, there are some real Shark Tank success stories out there. But the odds of really hitting that jackpot are kind of slim. So how much is enough? Is more always better? So the lesson points out uh, research that suggests an ever-increasing income follows
1: the law
0: of diminishing returns. So just as an aside, what sort of law do you think this law of diminishing returns is? Exactly. Was it legislated by a governing body? Was it voted in by an electorate? So how could it become a law? And I, does any, I don't know if anyone else finds it interesting about how seemingly easily natural laws are accepted I mean, I have never had a, a contentious conversation or any resistance discussing the law of gravity, the laws of physics. But when you, when you work on maybe changing minds or shifting paradigms of the view of God's law from a list of arbitrary, imposed, dictatorial rules over to design protocols that were that were how we're built that life was designed to operate that seems to be a little bit more difficult i'm not sure if i'm the only one that's been met with some resistance on that front
2: to be fair people who are in those fields who are trying to change shift you know, nuance. But, right. You know, some guy that supports the string theory is definitely arguing with somebody else. You know. Yes. There is argument. It's not unusual. It's the changing minds that matters. It's the changing minds that that is what is the contentious part.
0: No, I agree. And the only way those laws were discovered and have become accepted as absolute is by uncovering truth and uncovering evidence. I mean, those laws have always been in place. The fact that we didn't know about them doesn't mean they didn't exist. It's us uncovering that truth and discovering the evidence, and then adopting that. Yes, Russell.
3: Yeah, I was going to add a caveat to that, that. You know, you can you can discuss the law of gravity with a physicist, or you can discuss the law of gravity with a four year old. Right. You're going to meet you're going to meet two different um,
0: levels of understanding. Correct. Yeah. And
3: the four year old may say, "Why? Why? Why?" Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and may not believe it, and still think he's Superman and can jump off the roof <laughs> with a cape
3: when discussing you know imposed versus natural law uh when it comes to you know god's law we encounter the same uh, childlike level of understanding i agree and learning and acceptance and uh resistance
0: right i mean i think that's important and even in this class i mean for for me i've been coming to this class now for eight years so some of the concepts I've had a chance to work through some of the concepts that really were earth-shaking and caused me to question a lot of what I thought was right. Um, so we have to be really cognizant, I think, of that in this class because we always have new people joining that have not had that that history or that background and that chance to to kind of work through those issues. Yes, Wendell.
4: I think continuing with that, we are a collection of individuals who have a certain paradigm. Right. Right. You go and sit in another place, and you may not have that same paradigm, and so you may have to talk about um, natural law. Mm-hmm. There is a flat Earth society, right? Individuals who still have a different paradigm and have a great difficulty yeah. understanding that, and so where we grow up, where how we learn, mm-hmm. who raised us, yeah,
0: who, who we associate with,
4: we to whatever. Changes what paradigm we come from. So Agreed. Natural law, certain natural laws are easier for us to understand. Yes,
0: and to demonstrate. Uh, yeah. Agreed. Okay, sorry for veering off on that little tangent. Um, so has everyone here heard of the law of diminishing returns? Everybody understand uh, the concept. I was thinking some of you that have maybe children or grandchildren perhaps saw the perfect example of this law a couple weeks ago, uh, how it relates to Halloween candy. (laughs) So the first piece, oh, so good. Second, third piece might each be even better. But for sure, there comes a point at which the incremental, incremental gain or incremental pleasure from that next piece starts to decline, or at least slows up, then it starts to decline. Um, And the lesson points out that uh, this law also applies to income, to wealth, to material possessions. After a certain point, more money, more possessions, don't buy any more happiness. And when measuring what contributes most to happiness and a good quality of life, meaningful relationships, family, job satisfaction, finding your purpose in life those generally measure higher on the scale than wealth or income. Has anyone other than me discovered this to be absolutely true? And was anyone other than me told that this was true, didn't really believe it, had to go there to figure out, wow, they were right about that. And I mean, it's easy, it's easy to see how the concept more is better Works When you're young, you're starting out from scratch with nothing, or you're starting out with maybe some student loan debt, so you're starting out with less than nothing. Um, So you buy into the more is better concept. Then you look up, and several years have gone by. Maybe you've made some money, saved some money, got promoted, maybe even paid off some debt but your family relationships have suffered. You barely see your spouse. Your kids are strangers. This was hard-won wisdom for me, but it, it proves to be absolutely true. So I'm thinking pretty much anything that has to do with this world, things that are rooted in the selfishness, survival of the fittest methods, these things are all subject to this law of diminishing returns. So, alternatively, logically, what do you imagine is not subject to this law of diminishing returns? Love. Yes. Most
5: of us learn this law the hard way.
0: No doubt. I'm with you, brother. (laughs) Yes, things based on God's methods of beneficent giving, unselfishness, other-centered love. The quarterly lists these, loving, encouraging words, a smile, acts of kindness, a listening ear, respect, genuine friendship, a a hug. How about uncovering more and more transforming truth? How about ever expanding revelations of God's character and the nature of his law of love? I mean, think about the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Yes, Wendell?
4: I don't know. I seem to compartmentalize my life. And (laughs) I may understand what you're saying in certain aspects of my life, but not in others. We're entering a season in which there's a lot of, media um, expended to convince me that more is better or different is better or sure is better or whatever. And in certain segments of my life, I buy into that and it's difficult to bring all aspects of my life in a different realm.
0: No, I agree. I mean, in your field, Newer is better. The latest findings, the latest scientific results. I mean, people are coming to you hoping that you're advancing in that way. So I agree. It's a it's a balance. Yes, sir.
6: Yeah, we're talking a lot about things, yes, which of course are just the they're they're the the tangible for a spirit defect. Yes, I see it in my neck of the woods in things like students feeling like, wow, if I just study. More hours, I'm going to get it. Nice. As a musician, if I just practice more hours, I'll get it. I can tell you, I know firsthand that there's a law of diminishing returns. And For sure. There are times where you just get up, and walk away, mm-hmm. and come back the next day. That's not a thing. So it tells me that it's it's a character. I agree. Issue. And then I'm reminded of in Philippians 4, where Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things. In all things. With little and with, and with much. And so it's that centeredness that says it isn't all about me.
0: Yes. Very, very well said. I appreciate that. And we're going to talk more about that, as well as the law of worship, which I think you're you're somewhat referring to as well. Yeah. So, last comment about uh, Saturday's lesson. Does anybody remember Gordon Gecko's famous quote from the movie Wall Street? Greed is good. Greed is good, and I think it can be, but it depends entirely on what you're greedy for. Let's look at Sunday's lesson. Justice will be done! Exclamation point. That's another one, if you're counting. So the, the entire lesson title, Weep and Howl, comes from a text in James 5.1. It's a call for audible grief and lament. And it offers some warnings about impending misery that will cause weeping and wailing and howling for the rich. But are these warnings and admonishments aimed simply at the rich, or is there more to it? Um, You know, in the Bible where it will subtitle chapters or sections, the chapter subtitle for James 5 in the NIV reads, Warning to Rich Oppressors. Mm And the subtitle in the message version says destroying your life from within, which hints even a little more toward natural law constructs and consequences. Reading the passage in context, I think, makes it even clearer. And it reads this way from the message. And a final word to you, arrogant rich. Take some lessons and lament. You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you've piled up is judgment. All the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. Wow. <laughs> <laughs>
7: Any
0: thoughts or comments about those verses? I <laughs> yes.
4: I like most of it except for the Avenger bar.
0: Isn't that interesting? It kind of reminds you of someone with a cape.
1: <laughs> What about the text that says it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of needle? Oh, we're so going to get there. Kingdom. <laughs> Two minutes. What happens is it takes our effort away from studying the scriptures and finding where we are lacking of the Holy Spirit and what we need to do to prepare for it. Agreed. Coming. Agreed.
0: So do we think simply being rich is problematic?
5: There are people that have a... Um, a greedy spirit
0: no question, and I don't think it's a it's a barometer I don't think it's a guaranteed um, identifier, but are there things associated with being rich that you would specifically have to be conscious of? I mean, do we tend to be more dependent on God when we're rich or when we're poor? Indeed. Is it more typical to step out in faith and really trust? When we're rich and comfortable, or when we're a little stretched.
4: It's more difficult to evangelize in countries that are predominantly better off.
0: Yes. They are rich and in need of nothing. We're going to talk about that.
1: I may not be the oldest person in the room, but I'm pretty close to it. But, uh, <laughs> I have found that as I age, all of this be- just becomes things. It's vapor.
0: Just all is vapor. Yes,
1: vanity.
5: It's interesting that statement, one good up and come, or up, good Adventist church I went to many years ago, this statement was put to me, the poor little rich kids. I don't need God, I got the money. And, and this was a family that were strong pillars of the church. Right. Their grandfathers, their great grandfathers, they started a church. But by the time they got there, it seems like they didn't, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, they didn't have to go out like, as I always say, us dairy farmers had to go out there, and you know what we had to shovel. Yes. Yeah. You know, they didn't have to do that.
0: For sure. So, like I said, I don't, I don't think it's a guarantee. I mean, when you're, when you're having to pay tithe and you don't have money for rent, that's a little bit of a bigger step of faith than if it's no sacrifice at all. Um, and we're, like I said, we're going to talk about some scriptural support and advice for those who think they are rich and in need of nothing. Again, not a guarantee. Were there any godly folks in the Bible that were quite well off? you think of anybody? Abraham. Abraham. Very wealthy. Job is one of the the, the most common. Solomon. All the kings. I don't know of any poor kings. So, bottom line, your earthly net worth does not determine the condition of your heart. But there are certainly some conditions that come along with being very comfortable with the things of this world that may be a a challenge. So here we're going to talk about the story of the rich young ruler that my mom brought up. Um, The story is listed in Luke 18 or Matthew 19. describes a wealthy young man who was just sure that he was doing all the right things, keeping all the right rules, Until he was asked to really sacrifice and let go of the treasures of this world that he valued maybe too much. Jesus' response is enlightening. Do you have any idea how difficult it is for people who have it all to enter God's kingdom? I'd say it's easier to thread a camel through a needle's eye than get a rich person into God's kingdom. The disciples asked, well, then who has any chance at all? Jesus said, no chance at all if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world if you trust God to do it. Like I said, I think that's one of the things that comes along with with earthly wealth is we get very self-sufficient. We get very comfortable and maybe even a little controlling.
8: Yes? I think that the attitude though, that we're talking about really can happen at any level. No doubt. Because uh, you can say, well, it's very easy when you have everything uh, to feel no need. Right. But um, I do know wealthy people who are extremely giving. Yes. And then I know people who have nothing to speak of, who have the attitude, and that's somewhat what Brian was saying a minute ago, of um, it's almost holding everything so tightly. So I think it really, in some ways, whatever financial level we're on, it's an attitude base that I think God wants to get through to us. Agreed. No matter where we're at financially, it's a spirit issue. It
0: is, and a heart issue. And like I said, I don't know if anybody's been on a mission trip or to a third-world country, but, I mean, you will come across, when you say people who have nothing, I mean, they literally have nothing, and they're happy. They're true in their heart, joyful. They're generous. They have nothing, but if they find something, they'll give it away.
1: Yes. So,
0: you know, yes, for sure, it's it's a heart condition, and it cuts across every economic class, no doubt. So, uh, one of the founders of our church, Ellen White, had some things to say on on the subject of the the well-off. She advises us, uh, and while working for the poor, we should also give attention to the rich, whose souls are equally precious in the sight of God. Christ worked for all who would hear his word. He sought not only the publican and the outcast, but the rich and cultured Pharisee, the Jewish nobleman, and the Roman ruler. The wealthy man needs to be labored for in the love and fear of God. Too often he trusts his riches and feels not his danger. The worldly possessions which the Lord has entrusted to men are often a source of great temptation. Thousands are thus led into sinful indulgences that confirm them in habits of intemperance and vice. The scriptures teach that wealth is a dangerous possession only when placed in competition with the immortal treasure. It is when the earthly and temporal absorbs the thoughts, the affections, the devotion, which God claims that it becomes a snare. Those who are bartering the eternal weight of glory for a little of the glitter and tinsel of earth, the everlasting habitations for a home which can be theirs, but a few years at best, they are making an unwise choice. It is the love of money that the word of God denounces as the root of all evil. Money itself is the gift of God to men to be used with fidelity in his service. God blessed Abraham and made him rich in cattle and silver and in gold. And the Bible states as an evidence of divine favor that God gave David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah much riches and honor. Like other gifts of God, the possession of wealth brings its increase of responsibility and its peculiar temptations. How many who have in adversity remained true to God have fallen under the glittering allurements of prosperity? With the possession of wealth, the ruling passion of a selfish nature is revealed. The world is cursed today by the miserly greed and the self-indulgent vices of the worshippers of Mammon." And that was written in 1882. And uh, I don't think we've improved much since then. So the middle bold section in Sunday's lesson in the quarterly reads, there is so much injustice in the world, especially economic injustice, (laughs) which is a whole nother class. Sometimes it is so hard to understand why some people get rich exploiting the poor and worse, why they seem to get away with it! Exclamation, Exclamation point. <laughs> so do you agree or disagree with this premise?
8: No
4: one gets away with it. Exactly.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk about that. So Jesus consistently advocated for the poor and disadvantaged during his earthly ministry, promised we would always have the poor with us. I also found this quote in Mrs. White's writing, and I think it's profound regarding maybe the conventional views of economic inequality. It was not the purpose of God that poverty should ever leave the world. The ranks of society were never to be equalized, for the diversity of conditions which characterizes our race is one of the means by which God has designed to prove and develop character. Many have urged with great enthusiasm that all men should have an equal share in the temporal blessings of God. This was not the purpose of the Creator. Christ has said that we shall have the poor always with us. The poor as well as the rich are the purchase of his blood and among his professed followers. In most cases, the former serve him with a singleness of purpose, while the latter are constantly fastening their affections on earthly treasures." and Christ is forgotten. The cares of this life and the greed for riches eclipse the glory of the eternal world. It would be the greatest misfortune that has ever befallen mankind if all were to be placed upon an equally in worldly possessions. That's from Acts of the Apostles.
4: So are we supposed to not work toward relief of of poor circumstances?
0: I don't think so. I mean, I still think we should, but
3: we're not to work toward everyone being financially equal
0: or completely eradicating it. You know what I mean? Just because you can't eradicate it doesn't mean that you can't help it.
6: Right. And then the point is, is you're helping because you're thinking of the other people. Of course. What I'm doing, I'm giving this great gift. Right. I,
3: I've come to an understanding that there are certain political groups who outright reject Christianity and reject a God concept based on these statements that that uh, that you know the poor will be with you always. Right. One the, I believe is one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. Christ echoes it, and they the humanist rejects Christianity outright because of those two statements. They think, no, no, we can do better.
0: Right. Or why wouldn't he fix it if right. he could? And I mean, yeah, it's the same. of It's the whole discussion of why does a good God allow suffering? Mm-hmm. Yes.
9: I don't remember the exact circumstances, but Jesus, Peter, James, and John were coming into the city, and there was a cripple there. and The disciples were discussing why he was that way. Was it his sin or his parents' mm-hmm. sin? Yeah. Christ says, no, he was put here so he could
0: glorify, glorify God. Glorify God. Exactly.
9: So I take that to mean that sometimes the poor are put in front of us to see how we will react to them. It's no question. To see if we're being
3: greedy and considering ourselves or reconsider others.
0: And have you ever done that? Have you ever had the opportunity to help someone who was really in need, not anything for yourself or not anything that you would get in return, and did it not change you? Did you not feel character transformation during that? There's no question. So what about the mention of how the exploiters seem to get away with it? What kind of law lens must you be looking through, if you're worried about folks getting away with wrongdoing or injustices going unpunished?
2: scripture is Psalm 73. Uh, yes, interesting, but especially to read beyond verse 19, uh, because as you, as it's going through and saying um, verse 16 and 17, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. That was part of the set text. But if you keep reading beyond that, mm-hmm. on down to uh, to 27, and it puts it in context of, we're talking about the destruction of the the wealthy later on, uh-huh. but it's specifically those who are far from you will perish. Again, it's, it's their choice to separate.
0: Right. The source of life. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, we've learned about design law and natural consequences of being out of harmony that explain how none of us actually get away with anything. And it's one of my favorite quotes in this class from First Selected Messages. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner from his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring about the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Let's look at Monday's lesson, When Wealth Becomes Worthless. So it asks us to describe the effect of wealth, or lack of it, on these biblical characters. Nabal, Hezekiah, and Peter. Does everybody remember who Nabal is? In the Old Testament, Bad fellow. back in David's time, he was Abigail's husband. Um, He was wealthy, kind of arrogant, suspicious, stingy, selfish with his things. So, if you remember, he had sheep shearers, he had lots of stuff. David and his men were were going through the wilderness, they were hungry, they were tired, they needed nourishment and they sent messengers to Nabal's camp and asked for some bread, some meat. Um, Nabal's reply was, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to the men coming from who knows where?
2: The, what the servants, though, came and told Abigail was very revealing in that yes. it, these these fellows were a wall of protection around as well. Exactly. And so to treat them so discourteously, mm-hmm. uh, heads up. Oh, yeah.
9: Did Nabal know that?
2: Yeah. Know what?
9: Know that David's group was defending him, and if he did, why would he say, who are these people that I don't
1: know? I didn't ask them to come here. You know, kind of a- yeah, I mean,
9: it sounds like okay. There's there's a major miscommunication there for whatever reason. And he was not aware of who David <coughs> was. history. The winners write history. We know that,
0: right? Okay, so from that
9: perspective, David is shown in great light. But from David's perspective did Nabal really know who David was and understand David? We don't know for sure that he did. And he could have very well have seen David as just another band of roving whatevers. Yeah. In which case, from his perspective, that would have been a logical response.
0: Right. Yes, Russell.
3: That's a very valid point. I I tend to take it differently, though. I, I see that Nabal's response is the same as Pharaoh's response. Who is Jehovah that I should obey him? Mm-hmm. I know not. He knew full well who Jehovah was. <laughs> <laughs> his, his arrogance, in his mm-hmm. his self-centeredness, uh, in his self-reliance, he he proclaimed the statement: "Who is Jehovah, or who is David? Who that uh, yeah, I, I can take care of myself." <laughs> so uh, you you may well be right, and he may not but have we
0: Yeah, we're not told, told that. that. We don't know it. either. Yeah.
3: What, and, and you can be right, we don't know.
0: Mm-hmm. But it does. I get the impression. That this was this was not an out of character response for him. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's that this...
9: Because the winners write history.
0: Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> ah, Did you
9: have
5: a know? yes? yes
4: Wendell. Someone has been around his flocks for how many months, and he doesn't. He didn't know. know. Oh, he knew. So
9: I yeah. yeah. I don't think so. Uh, when I look at something like the size of Berkshire Hathaway, and if there's somebody who's, who's running a, a hot dog stand at Geico in Fredericksburg. I don't think the head of Berkshire Hathaway in Omaha would know that. Mm. Okay? I mean, we're talking economies of scale and differences, yeah. and we're talking pure concepts here. Right. With, history is moot. We don't know. And, and I'm, I'm not going to judge either way.
0: I don't know. Yeah. Behind you.
9: Oh, David slew died not too many years previous, and he was a rock star, and I think everybody in the yeah. country knew David was.
0: That's, I mean, I think that's reasonable. He wouldn't have said what he did.
1: But here's
5: something else to think about. We're sitting here discussing this, but I mean, how many of us, when we come across the beggars on the street, have the exact same response?
0: response? Because we
5: know what they're all about. They're all about just getting some money to go get their next drug fix or alcohol fix. But yet we're in here talking like this is so egregious. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest here. Yes, sir tried to
0: <laughs> yes so like i said it, it sounded like that that was that was somewhat of an expected or typical response um regardless of who might have been asking for provision or a share of his things it sounded like he tended to hold to them rather tightly um what about hezekiah do we remember king hezekiah He was a wealthy king of Israel, he fell ill, and when he was warned by by Isaiah that he was about to die, he humbled himself, he wept, he begged God to be healed and for more life. And when the prophet told him he would be healed, he questioned whether he would know if it was God who healed him or if he just had a really super effective plaster of figs that fixed the boil. And so he requested a sign and he asked for the sundial to be turned back an hour as a uh, proof that it was actually God who healed him. Then after he was healed, he maybe got even a little more smug. He invited the Prince of Babylon to his palace and he showed him silver, gold, spices, aromatic oils, his stockpile of weapons, gave him a guided tour of all his prized possessions. There wasn't a thing in his palace or kingdom that Hezekiah didn't show them. Oh, that was stupid. Wrong move. Yeah. Then when he was warned about Israel's impending Babylonian exile, he believed that what Isaiah was saying was true, but kind of thought to himself, who cares? It won't happen during my lifetime. I'll enjoy peace and security as long as I live. And then they list Peter. Peter. What, uh, what was his wealth or lack of wealth worth to him or others? And they mentioned the story that, that the gentleman over here mentioned. Um, Peter and John, on their way to the temple services, they were stopped by a beggar, crippled from birth. And he wanted help. Peter told him, I do not have a nickel to my name, but what I have, I'll give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. So he had no earthly wealth, but what he had was worth more. The quarterly states in today's lesson, sooner or later, worldly wealth loses all its luster for all of us. We learn its limitations and maybe even its dark side. Money has its place. The problem is when people put it in the wrong place. Then the passage, there's a passage in Luke 12 that mirrors the memory text about the treasure treasure. In heaven, memory text from Matthew, Luke 12 states, What I'm trying to do here is get you to relax, not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things. But you know both God and how he works. Steep yourself in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Don't be afraid of missing out. You're my dearest friends. The Father wants to give you the very kingdom itself. Be generous. Give to the poor. Get yourselves a bank that can't go bankrupt, a bank in heaven far from bank robbers, safe from embezzlers, a bank you can bank on. Mm -hmm. The place where your treasure is is the place you will most likely want to be. So what is this treasure? That the apostles are talking about, yes, Wendell.
4: Well, uh, I'm sorry. Before we go, to yes. that question. Um, I am much more prone to help someone who didn't get into the hole of their own volition.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
4: And yet, God gives good things to those who get into the hole by themselves, mm-hmm. or are pushed there by others.
0: And don't we all get into the hole yeah. by ourselves? <laughs>
4: it goes against my inners to help those who don't help themselves yes. and who got there because they did stupid things
0: and we're going to talk about that a little bit practically what is what is the line between turning the other cheek or giving your coat versus being walked walked over but the whole con- this whole concept i think just flies in the face of, our, like you said, our selfish nature, earthly math. I mean, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. He was low, shall be exalted. All of it is just the antithesis of what we're told and what, what this structure and this culture tells us. There's no question. Yes, ma'am. Um,
7: I listened this past week uh, to three tremendous sermons by Dwight Nelson
2: mm-hmm.
7: called Tattoos on the Heart. They were preached last year. And it's taken from a book written by a priest, Gregory Boyle, Uh-huh. and it's all his experiences working with the drug, um, with the d- drugs and gang members in L.A. Wow, he's been doing it for over thirty years, and they refer to him as uh, G. They just call him G. Right, uh, but he provides a way to turn their life around, and he provides a bakery for them to work in twenty-four-seven, so they can. Uh, do legitimate things for money instead of being with a gang. And he provides, uh, classes in parenting and money management and offers GEDs for these guys. And, but the big thing they start with is tattoo removal. Mm. And they, and Dwight said there's doctors from White Memorial Hospital in LA that donate their time to come several times a week to remove these tattoos from these guys. That's the first step in their recovery. And it says that um, tour buses flock to go to this bakery where, I I don't know, several hundred people work of the gang members, and they want to see these killer gangs that are working side-by-side together in the bakery.
0: Man. I mean, Mm. it's
7: amazing to them. They can't believe the transformation.
0: That is amazing. But it's called
7: Tattoos of the Heart. I haven't read the book. But And he's won all kinds of humanitarian awards for his work with uh, the gang members
0: of mm. the I like it. Thank you for sharing that.
7: There's
9: another story. There's a guy out of um, Milwaukee, former basketball player that I ran into down here. that did a presentation at UTC a couple of years ago. Um, he'll walk into an inner city, take an empty parking lot or a run-down area, turn it into a uh, full uh, hydroponics or, or mm-hmm. garden area, right. self-supporting environment. Yeah. Put people to work, and they've got their own food source. They're feeding a neighborhood.
0: That's fantastic. He's
9: doing great stuff. That's fascinating technology and simple stuff that he's doing.
0: Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about treasure, in my mind's eye, I immediately see like a wooden box, maybe retrieved from a shipwreck at the bottom of the ocean. It's full of glittery coins and jewels. Um, but I think that the treasure Christ is referring to is different than that. We have studied <clears throat> excuse me the natural laws of worship, law of exertion in this class. by beholding, we become changed. this is how we were created, how we were designed to operate. What we focus on, what we pay attention to, what we invest our time and our effort and our resources in, we become like, we strengthen, we ingrain and we entrench. Because we are God's highest created beings on this planet, He's the only one we can worship and not devolve. He's the only one we can worship where we can still grow and develop and progress. Louis Giglio, has anybody ever heard of him? He's kind of a, a famous or infamous worship pastor uh, YouTube him if you want to see some really amazing amazing talks on how the picture of Christ exists in uh, in this planet or is hidden in this planet. Um, But he wrote a little pocket book about this concept. It's called The Air I Breathe, Worship as a Way of Life. It came out in 2006, and he starts the book this way. You, my friend, are a worshiper. Every day, all day long, everywhere you go, you worship. It's what you do. It's who you are. I don't know whether or not you consider yourself a worshiping kind of person, but you cannot help but worship something. It's what you were made to do. Should you, for some reason, choose not to give God the worship he desires, you'll still be worshiping something, exchanging the creator for something he has created. Worship is simply about value. Worship is our response to what we value most. This person, this thing, this experience, this whatever, is what matters most to me. It's the thing I put first in my life. And we're not just talking about the religious crowd or churchgoers, Christians. We're talking about everybody on planet Earth, a multitude of souls proclaiming with every breath what is worthy of their affection, their attention, their allegiance, proclaiming with every step what it is that they worship. So how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. Simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your loyalty, your checkbook. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Sure, not too many of us walk around saying, I worship my stuff, I worship my Xbox, I worship my job, I worship this pleasure, I worship her, I worship my body, I worship me. But the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other But the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. Our worship is more about what we do than what we say. To me, it's a little scary. An honest inventory of where you're spending your time, your affection, your money can be scary. But it can also be enlightening. You know, sobering is the the word I have in my notes sobering indicator of the sorts of treasures we are building and heaping up for eternity. Let's look at Tuesday's lesson, The Cries of the Poor. We've already talked some about the cries of the the poor. But this lesson lists several different categories of wealthy people that have been singled out by James. There's rich merchants who will be cut down in the midst of their pursuits, business people who sue to protect their investments, and agricultural landholders who have withheld wages from their laborers. These verses describe the rich negatively based on their past behavior, present attitude, and future punishment, this is from the quarterly, for heaping up treasure at the expense of the poor. So an especially heinous behavior that's mentioned is the withholding of wages for laborers are from laborers and there are several Old Testament verses listed cautioning against the same practice. This was particularly oppressive to the poor laborers in those days because they likely needed that day's wages to buy that day's food for their families. Um, The text in Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15 says, don't abuse a laborer who is destitute and needy, whether he is a fellow Israelite living in your land and in your city Pay him at the end of each workday. He's living from hand to mouth and needs it now. If you hold back this pay, he'll protest to God and you'll have sin on your books. So is there anything really about the current financial climate that leads you to believe things have changed drastically since those days? I don't think so. Google says that in 2012, the average American household with at least one credit card has nearly $16,000 of credit card debt. I have people who work for me who most certainly live paycheck to paycheck, and would be serious.
3: live paycheck to paycheck. Can't quite. Can't
0: quite. Yeah. Would they would be seriously impacted if their pay was held held back even for a day? Even more. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he who who is faithful with little things. (laughs) Um, There's a quote in, in Second Testimonies that say riches bring with them great responsibilities to obtain wealth by unjust dealing, by overreaching in trade, by oppressing the widow and the fatherless, or by hoarding up riches and neglecting the wants of the needy will eventually bring the just retribution described by the inspired Apostle James. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl, for your miseries shall come upon you. So how will this bring eventually bring the just retribution? Is that inflicted punishment, you think? Are there consequences to acquiring your wealth in this manner?
5: Back up just a second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, over the centuries since this was written, how many countries' downfall started from within, not taking care of their poor? Mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer the poor is already already going to be there. Basically, some people don't have the mental capability of being a nuclear physicist. Right. They'll do great at being a dairy farmer, a chicken farmer, uh, fixing the plumbing, something like mm-hmm. that. I've always been that way because some people just don't have... Right. Even what some of us in this room have. But what has happened over the years was to start with the Roman Empire. What brought the Roman Empire down from within? Mm -hmm. The persecution of what? The poor people. Yeah. Taken away from exactly what it said in here. withholding wages. Why are we leaning even politically one direction? Somebody just mentioned the minimum wage. Yeah. Why are we leaning towards that? Because our wealth is going like this. One's going up, one's going mm-hmm. down. And that's where you come from. The idea is that a downfall, even with ourselves, even with ourselves spiritually, comes within.
0: Agreeing.
5: Go all the way back to Sodom and see that. Yes. I mean, that
3: was a sin of Sodom. They were lazy, overfed, and they didn't care for their poor.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. I think by today's standards, of what I've heard, and I don't know how true it is, but... Even in some good Christian churches, there's only maybe a 52 percent that pay tithe, and I don't know how they can expect to be blessed enough to have enough where they can take care of their own requirements plus be able to lend a little to the poor. Right?
0: I think there are a lot of churches that would love 52
1: percent blessing. I I. I That just boggles my mind, I'm sorry.
9: Well, I I know there's a lot of people that look at what's happening within a church. That don't agree with what's happening within their church. That's true. That pay their tithe, but they may not pay it, or they may. Some people even pay more than their ten percent, mm-hmm. but they may not pay it as tithe. But they pay they, their ten percent is more than covered to their to goodwill and to their God. Mm-hmm. Going back to your to where you were going before the comment, if the wealth isn't. It, it's the responsibility that comes with it. Yes, it's how you handle the responsibility. It's your attitudes
0: towards it. And how you treat others. Exactly. That
9: yeah, all falls under responsibility. If you have any, any resource that you have, it comes back to the old concept of husband and or responsibility mm-hmm. for how you manage and handle your resources.
0: Yes. Yeah. Did you have a comment?
5: Well, a comment. We I mean, take a look at the interest rates. I can remember when there was a law that you couldn't charge more than 18% interest. Right. They're charging up to 36.9% interest. You know, it's, it's
0: outrageous. Yeah. That, I mean, that was loan shark. rates at one time. Let's move on to Wednesday's lesson. Yes. Absolutely.
8: The comments. Uh, one thought that's striking me from what all was just said. You know we've talked a lot in here about judging Mm -hmm. how we have to step back and and I think I, I think historically we just have such a hard time between not judging does not mean condoning. Right. You know, that that line of saying it's, to not judge doesn't mean anything goes and that we don't have values right. and ethics and all of that. But it was what Don just said, which is when there's statistics of saying this many people pay tithe, this many do not, those statistics really, from what Don is saying, are not necessarily accurate. They're not. They're not accurate. Because just because it's not paid through that system doesn't mean it's not happening. So, there again, when we look and say, oh, that person's not living <laughs> up to what they know or believe or whatever, that's really, again, a judgment that is. may not be accurate.
0: And that to me, we don't have the. The knowledge to make. We, don't, we cannot see the heart. So what about the other person that's paying 10% and the extra whatever percent offering, but they're doing it grudgingly? And they're not getting the yes, blessing, they're and they're not... The book, that's right. Their hearts are not being changed.
8: it only because what they think it's going to get them.
0: Right, or what other people might think.
8: I think it's also important to look at what God's goal is for us.
9: Yes. He doesn't just... Count us as righteous and leave us where we're at. Correct. I don't think he looks at our financial and our our earthly means that way either. Mm-mm. There's statements about you could take all the money in the world, spread it out evenly, and within a few years it would be right back where it started. Yeah. So there is human responsibility. For sure. And lack of responsibility that accounts for a large portion of it. And I think it's real easy for those with means to be made the villain
0: Mm-hmm. No doubt.
9: And some are, but I think there's a large portion of those without means that don't have the character that God wished they had.
0: Absolutely true. Yeah. So, Wednesday's lesson, fat and happy for now. <laughs> this lesson talks about those who live earthly lives of luxury and self-indulgence. <clears throat> I mean, I think every generation must think that they are the worst, the most self indulgence. Things can't get any worse. But the contrast between what James' generation must have thought as luxurious and ours still tr- strikes me as fairly significant. I mean, if he thought that their lavishness was enough to write about 2,000 years ago, what must, what would he think about today? So, Revelation 3:17 has a description or some chiding given to the Laodicean church that describes some of what we've been talking about. I know you inside and out and find little to my liking. You're not cold, you're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale, you're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag I'm rich. I've got it made. I don't need anything from anyone. Oblivious to the fact that you're pitiful. You're a blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. Here's what I want you to do. Buy your gold from me. Gold that's been through the refiner's fire. Then you'll be rich. Buy your clothes from me. Clothes designed in heaven. You've gone around half-naked long enough. And buy medicine for your eyes from me so that you can see. Really see. Any thoughts on what these, the gold or the clothes or the eye ointment we're supposed to be buying is talking about?
4: How do you buy if you're poor? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, that's the kingdom currency is different than, I think, the worldly economy.
5: Doesn't the Bible someplace say buy without money, buy without
3: price? Yes. Yeah, the way, it's a gift the, the healing he's offering is a gift he's using a metaphor that the listener can understand uh, you know to, we, we buy and sell but the reality is is that it's a gift
0: and we do have something to give we have a heart of stone right. to give we have a selfish nature and a, a pathetic character that he's offered to take from us in exchange for for Christ's character, for Christ's life.
9: The parable of the the guy that had the grape field and he hired the workers in the morning, Mm -hmm. and he hired the workers at noon, and he hired the workers in the evening, and he paid them all the same That's correct. Extrapolate that concept to the poor and whatever. I I think the concept of buy is a concept, but if you were to go with, with a literal barter or exchange of some asset, I would presume that it would be and a form of economies of scale, that God looks at what you have and what you need, and says, "Okay, well, this guy—it's going to be ten bucks for you. It's going to be less than a penny." You know, going on a concept basis, and He would provide what you need based on what's there.
0: I think so, and I think we're all at different levels. And
9: it's in, in, in buying—the act of buying means you're initiating an action to receive. So you know, when you're buying, you're going to God say, "I want." Right. And God says, "Okay." here. And and it, you're, in the process of buying, you're initiating a transaction. Now, what happens in the negotiation process is, is irrelevant to an extent here, but God will say, okay, you want, I have here.
0: I actually think that what he wants to give all of us is the same. Our capacity to receive it is all different. You know what I mean? And he's going to give as much blessing or as much truth much revelation as as he can yes sir
5: now what uh, just a funny thought come to my mind when you're reading that you sound like the company store <laughs> how many here work for it yeah, uh, some yeah. of us are old enough that we work for the company store where did you have to buy everything companies. from the company right, right. Store. <laughs> then it then I went on with that saying and you mentioned earlier treasures in heaven what are we drawing on? Okay, now some of us probably going to have more stars on our crown than others. And that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Sometimes that star on your crown, you don't know who you said what to whom.
0: Exactly. What
5: are you drawing from? You're drawing from the company store. The company store has it. Right. Somebody's <laughs> going like this. Yeah. <laughs> so in my mind, I may have helped somebody or something. I have a wife that's handicapped, she knows she's going to be healed. Right. Maybe not today. But she'll be healed. Amen. So I think what I'm saying is that treasures in heaven that we've built up, maybe it's only one star. Exactly. But you can draw from that one star.
9: Mm-hmm. I, I find it interesting that the, the 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 revelation where God says, or the, the writer says, that the the saved will throw their crowns at, at, at Jesus' feet, and I'm looking at like, well, we get there. I mean, yes, we've all been indoctrinated, inculcated, whatever with. You need to have a crown, and you need to work to have stars and stones in your crown. I think when we get there, we're going to realize it's not about the crown. It's Doesn't not about matter. The stars here. This is not important. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Just getting in there. We we're short on time. Let me just read um, Thursday's lesson. I think the quarterly concludes Thursday's lesson nicely by saying James never condemns the rich simply because they are rich. It is their attitudes and actions that matter to God. In other words, their hearts and their minds and their characters. Similarly, the bare fact of being economically poor does not in and of itself endear a person to God. It is the poor in spirit and rich in faith who will be heirs of the kingdom. And these inner qualities have no inherent relationship to one's economic circumstances. Thank you very much for, for participating today in class. Let's close with prayer. Father God, thank you for, for sending your spirit and, and your promise um, that you will reveal your truth and your love. Let us be open and uh, available to accept that and let us take what we've learned and and give it to others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.